Hello, good afternoon and welcome. This is the first of uh, a series of podcasts called The Nest, which is Nesta's new audio conversation series to dig deeper into our mission areas. My name is Oliver Zanetti and I'm mission manager in Nesta's Sustainable Future Mission. And I'm really pleased today to be joined by Bindi Patel, who's head of customer experience at Buttonfall Heat UK. We'll hear more about Bindi and get to the conversation in due course, but first to cover a few housekeeping issues. Uh, so we've got about 30 minutes, um, which will be taken up largely by guided conversation by me, uh, but there will be time for Q&A at the end. Um, so you can ask your questions by tweet, so tweeting at Nesta underscore UK, um, and we'll try and answer them at the end of our discussion. Uh, just to let you know as well that closed captions can be accessed within the Twitter space as well. Um, so before we start, I'd like to just take a few moments to introduce Nesta and talk about the work that we do. So Nesta is the UK's innovation agency for social good, and we work to design, test and scale innovations that will help solve some of society's biggest problems. So we work in three mission areas. Uh, the first is called A Fairer Start, which is around seeking to narrow the outcome gap between children growing up in disadvantage and the national average. Uh, and so colleagues in that team have two focus areas. They look at uh, ways to intervene in early childhood and also in secondary education. We have a second mission area called Healthy Life, which aims to increase the average number of healthy, lived, healthy life years in the UK whilst narrowing inequalities. And we have two focus areas there, which are around obesity and loneliness. Our third mission, and that's the mission that I work in and the, the subject of this conversation today, is called A Sustainable Future. Um, and our mission aims are to accelerate the decarbonisation of household activities in the UK and to improve levels of productivity. Um, to talk a bit more about the work we're doing in the Sustainable Future mission, so we're working primarily on innovation to increase the uptake of low-carbon heating. Now, this is a really fruitful area to work in for a number of reasons. Uh, heating is responsible for around 15% of the UK's carbon emissions, and that's heating just uh, of our homes. Um, and decarbonizing this obviously could make a really big dent in the UK's total emissions um, with what we hope would be a pretty negligible difference in terms of lifestyle. Um, so much of the discussion in this area has been around heat pump adoption. Um, and many of you will have heard things from uh, the government coming out recently uh, around low carbon heat strategies that have emerged in the past few weeks. Um, but a lot of the conversation has been around heat pumps. However, heat networks, we think, have a role to play too. And indeed, the Committee on Climate Change argues that in the UK, heat networks should make up around 18% of our domestic heat provision by 2050. So to put that in context, I think it's around 1% or 2% nowadays. So this is why we've invited Bindi Patel to join us. Um, so we're really lucky to have Bindi Patel with us today. She's Head of Customer Experience at Battenfall Heat UK, where she's responsible for Battenfall's end-to-end customer journey and their community partnerships. Uh, she has a really wide range of experience in this area, which we can, we can draw on in the conversation today. So prior to Battenfall, Bindi launched and was Director of the Heat Trust, where she worked on new regulatory standards for heat networks in the UK and had a focus, too, on customer protection. Um, and she has over 12 years of experience in the sector, having worked on energy efficiency and fuel poverty policy as a senior manager Energy UK. She advised local authorities on climate change and energy strategies at the Energy Saving Trust. 
and was Lambeth Council's Lead Officer on Sustainability and Energy Efficiency in the Built Environment. So it's a real privilege to have access to all of this experience, and it's a shame we only actually have half an hour to talk about it. Um, so a huge welcome, Bindi. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, are you there? I am, Oliver. It's lovely, lovely to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Fantastic. It's a real pr privilege. So let's, uh, let's jump right in then. So heat networks, I guess for many people, the first question is, uh, what are they? Okay, great question to kick off. So in its simplest form, a heat network is where two or more properties receive heating and hot water from a shared energy source. So instead of having an individual heating system in each property, so typically still around um, over 80% of us have um, a gas boiler providing our heating and hot water, um, on a heat network, multiple properties can be served by a single heating source. And that heating source is often located in what we call an energy centre. Pipework, so underground pipework from that energy centre takes hot water from the energy centre through the distribution pipework and delivers it to each of the properties connected to the heat network, providing um, occupants reliable heating and hot water. Um, so they can vary in size, as I mentioned, in its simplest form, it's just, you know, two or more properties. But uh, at Vattafel, we focus on large citywide heat networks, delivering heating and hot water to thousands of properties across the city. And it's one of the uh, most useful technologies and one actually one of the um, lowest cost and cost effective technologies out there in trying to deliver low carbon heating uh, to, uh, uh, to cities at scale. That's really interesting. Thanks for that. I was wondering then, um, so you mentioned uh, it being useful and low, low cost. What other advantages are there to heat networks? Uh, great. Yes. Going straight into that. Um, so uh, one of the things that I think is sometimes missed from heat networks is that heat networks for me are enabling infrastructure. So once that heat network is built, it allows you to future-proof your future heating and hot water needs. And that's because heat networks are what we call technology agnostic. They can be fed by different forms of low carbon and renewable heating sources. So that could include waste heat from industrial processes. You could capture waste heat from data centers. Um, in Islington, there is a heat network. It's the Bunhill heat network that takes heat from the underground. And you can also incorporate low carbon technologies such as air source heat pumps, uh, water source heat pumps. In fact, Vattenfall is the energy partner for a development in Brent Cross Town that is being developed by RG related and in that development we're going to be um, in, uh, running a heat network that has two of the largest air source heat pump installations in the UK so two eight megawatt heat pumps are going to be installed there and up to about five kilometers of buried pipe work and those heat pumps are going to provide heating and hot water for that entire development so for me one of the big benefits of heat networks is that they they can be future proofed and that you can add different low carbon technologies to the heat network as that heat network grows. Second real advantage uh, to heat networks is that as uh, an occupant of a property um, there is no generating asset inside your property. So at the moment lots of homes have gas boilers there's combustion happening in your property and some people may not realise that actually that's a big source of air pollution. By taking generation um, out of that property and it being in a specified specific energy centre, you're immediately improving air quality within the home. 
You're also retaking away um, the bother of repair and maintenance. So for customers being on a heat network, you're getting an integrated and all-inclusive service. Not only is that heating and hot water that's being delivered to your property, but on the network, so on Vattenfall heat networks, all repair and maintenance up to what we call a heat interface unit, and we can come on to that a bit later on, um, is included within the heat charge. So it's an all-inclusive service. It's low carbon heating to your property. It saves up space in that you don't have generating assets in an individual property. And it builds on economies of scale. So by sharing, uh, by connecting multiple properties onto a shared network, we can get bring those economies of scale to fruition to delivering cheaper um, energy to homes and businesses connected. That's really interesting. Thanks for that. So advantages there for, I guess, both for the consumer, which we can probably come on to more in a, in a moment, and also for the, for the infrastructure too. Um, one thing that I'm kind of interested to, to know a bit more about is where they would be, maybe where they would be best located or what kind of homes they might be most suitable for. Sure. So uh, what I would say is that in in terms of kind of heat decarbonisation more broadly, there is probably no, no kind of silver bullet. So it's all about um, as we as we work to identify what's the best solution for different parts of the country and different properties. Um, there's there's no kind of single technology. Um, heat networks in particular are best suited primarily more urban environments where you have higher density of buildings, um, typically mixed tenure, so mixed use of buildings as well as residential, there's leisure, commercial offices, public buildings. And because you've got a mixture of different types of buildings, the occupants of those buildings have um, different needs for heating and hot water at different times of the day. So you've got a fairly constant need for heating and hot water throughout the day. As well as kind of in our cities, we, are, we know that space is limited. There's not always a space for individual solutions, especially in higher rise apartments. Uh, so in terms of current higher rise apartments, you can't have gas flues more than a certain um, number of stories. And typically that means the only alternative is direct electric heating. Um, and in addition, that if you are putting if we're thinking about electrification of heat and we're just focusing on direct electric heating, it requires quite significant reinforcement costs to the electricity grid. So again, if we're thinking about a heat network, rather than trying to put massive reinforcement so that you uh, into every, every uh, unit, with a heat network, yes, we can use um, low carbon technology. So that heat network could be powered or fed by an air source heat pump, for example. But it, it also means that you're not having to do that reinforcement uh, for the size of every unit, it can be shared across the entire network. Hopefully, that made a, a bit more sense than I think it did um, coming uh, coming out. No, um, that's really <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that makes lots of sense. Um, and then also, kind of saving, you know, shared infrastructure means that it, it's essentially kind of smaller infrastructure. You're not having to kind of replicate um, lots of different uh, heating units in, in separate properties. And you're saving um, space within the properties as well. So um, you're having to do the space that you'd need, for example, for a boiler, um, you save up. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for that. Um, I was going to add um, or kind of go a little bit further on the, the heat sources. So um, I guess as someone like me who has sat on a London Underground tube train sweltering, feeling as though the heat could be put to a better use than making me even hotter than I already am. I'm kind of fascinated by that idea that um, that a tube network could be used to heat people's homes. I wondered if you could talk a bit more about how that works. 
Okay, probably in really simple in a simple way. Is I'm not I'm not the the engineers that construct these within Vattenfall. Um, so very simply, uh, with um, an air source heat pump, um, you you've probably you've you've got a electrical fan where you're taking uh, the warmth from the air. That is uh, typically going to be used to be compressed within the air source heat pump. Um, and normally there's a refrigerant used in that. And then um, by compressing it, you're, it's, it's taken to a higher temperature. That's then used to warm water. And then that water is then distributed into the pipework, which is then delivered into people's homes for heating and um, hot water for kitchens and showers and baths. Amazing. And I presumably you could use almost any kind of source of, of heat for the same thing. Exactly. So with um, uh, with air source heat, heat heat pumps, it's obviously taking um, uh, warmth from the ambient air. In water, it's warmth uh, from the surrounding water. So yeah, wherever you've got that temperature differential, um, you can extract the heat, compress it to um, increase the temperature, and then use that to heat hot water. Perfect. And I guess for for UK householders, there fairly novel technology, but I understand that they are quite widely used and successfully used elsewhere in Europe. Is that right? Yeah, so they have been successfully used in Europe. I guess um, a number of uh, northern European countries obtain a significant proportion of their heat from heat networks. So Vattenfall is a Swedish energy company, so we're the, the fifth largest utility within Europe, and we own and operate heat networks in Sweden, which is our home country. So we are 100% owned by the Swedish state, but we also operate heat networks in the Netherlands um, and also in Germany too. Um, in Sweden, for example, um, 90% of all homes in Uppsala are heated using district heating from Vattenfall. And that network has about 50 kilometers worth of pipe work. And in Vattenfall, uh, uh, not in Vattenfall, sorry, in the Netherlands, Vattenfall also operates heat networks in three cities and collectively we're serving about 140,000 customers there. Um, both of those networks have different uh, heat sources feeding the network and that varies from waste heat from steel manufacturing, energy um, capturing waste heat from energy recovery facilities, water source, uh, solar, but also some biomass and some combined heat and power. What I would say, though, is um, heat networks aren't actually new to the UK. There are roughly about 14,000 heat networks in the UK at the moment. The vast majority of those, um, so about 12,000, are communal heating schemes. And what I mean by communal heating scheme is that is uh, essentially an apartment block, so a block of flats, and that has a single source um, of heating, and that typically would be uh, located in the basement of the of the building, so that might be gas boilers or a combined heat and power unit. In terms of district heating, so uh, the difference between communal and district heating is that a district heat network scheme is where multiple buildings are connected to the heat network. And at Vattenfall, that's what we're really interested in, is how we can use um, economies of scale and we can serve multiple buildings and do citywide schemes that have um, that are accessing their heating and hot water from a shared source. Um, a number of cities around the UK do have district heating networks. Um, a, a large proportion are located in London, but we also have heat networks in Birmingham, Southampton, Bristol, Nottingham, Glasgow and Edinburgh. So 
it is still a small part of the UK's um, energy mix at the moment. So as you mentioned, it's about 2% two, two, uh, 2 of UK heating demand, but obviously ambitions to grow that significantly, as you said, to around 18% um, by 2030. Thanks. That's really interesting. Just turning then, uh, we touched on it before, but maybe turning to it in some more detail, um, that uh, consumer experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Like, I guess people don't tend to think too hard about their heating, but if we were to do so, um, we could say that gas tends to provide a pretty good experience, um, apart from the fact that it's highly polluting. So you turn on the heating, very quickly your house becomes warm. Um, I was wondering whether... Um, heat pumps are able to provide, sorry, not heat pumps, heat networks are able to provide uh, that similar positive experience. Absolutely. And um, I feel for me, uh, with district heating, what's different and what's better is the way in which the service is delivered to customers. So as I mentioned, on a district heating network, there's no need for a boiler in each property. Instead, what you have is um, is a heat interface unit. And that is essentially the, the replacement of what would typically be a boiler in a property. Um, it's, it's typically smaller, a little bit smaller than a boiler. And that basically takes hot water from the primary network. So which has come from the energy centre and it delivers it to your um, central heating system within your home. Now, that is the same central heating system that you can expect to have today. So uh, that could be radiators, that could be underfloor heating and then obviously delivering um, hot water to bathrooms and kitchens. So for a customer, you can use your heating and hot water in exactly the same way you do before. You can have your heating programmer that gives you full control of when you want your heating to come on and a thermostat um, as well. Um, because the heat network market is a smaller market and younger markets in, in the UK, new build heat networks will have um, heat meters that are uh, have what we call uh, AMR technology. So that stands for automated meter readings, essentially smart meters in the sense that you don't get estimated billing. Um, does it mean that sometimes um, there might be a little drop in comms, but uh, you should always uh, uh, be able to pay for exactly what you've consumed with AMR meter readings. Um, the other thing that I mentioned a bit earlier is this concept of all-inclusive service for residents. So it's not just providing the heating and hot water, hot water that goes to each property. It's also the wraparound care that goes around that. So that is um, oversight of the entire network, so monitoring it, making sure it's working efficiently. It is maintenance and servicing of all the equipment across the heat network. Um, so there are requirements at the moment as part of Heat Trust that you maintain and service heat meters and heat, heat interface units every 24 months. That's all included. So the customer, when they're um, paying their heat charge, is getting an all-inclusive service. It's not just heating and hot water, it's all the wraparound care alongside that as well. So you'll never have to worry about any um, uh, call outs to uh, a, a plumber if your heating has gone down like you would with um, a gas boiler, unless you've got insurance for that. That's already included as part of the service when you're on a heat network. And then the final thing that I'd probably just kind of touch on is that, as we know, we've got to decarbonize our heating in order to meet net zero. And on a heat network, customers can be confident that they're being served by a future-proofed energy system because it's our responsibility as the operator of that heat network to ensure that it meets government regulation and has a viable route to being net zero by 2050. 
That's really interesting. It's a, it's a far cry. We have a, a colleague um, in the Sustainable Future team who grew up in Romania and who describes uh, heat networks as this kind of thing whereby you have no control. Suddenly the heating comes on, your house is boiling, and then suddenly the heating goes off and the house is freezing, this kind of thing. It sounds very, very different from, from that kind of experience. Absolutely. And I think that is the maturity, you know, growing maturity of the market and new technology, new innovation. Um, I mean, the, the, obviously, the, the energy system in the UK will have started in one place to where it is today. And, um, you know, big bounds and leaps that we've had in technology in particular um, and uh, the ability to use more kind of um, comms based technology and communications has really opened up innovation within this market. Thanks. That's really interesting. Just to kind of double back, I think, so um, we've had a couple of questions coming in, um, which may be worth just addressing now. Um, so one of the questions is, are there any particular sorts of homes that heat networks are best suited to? I think we touched on this. Um, you mentioned urban homes. Is there anything more you'd say on that? Um, so with new build homes, uh, sorry, sorry, with new build heat networks, typically you'll probably find them in um, larger developments located within more urban um, metropolitan areas. It's not to say that heat networks can't work um, outside of cities or major towns. It really depends on um, uh, the kind of solution for, for the properties in question. So, for example, there are shared loop heat networks so that could be a shared ground source loop and you've got um, properties that are connected to that and uh, each of those properties will probably then just have like a heat pump but they're, sh they're still connected to a shared ground source loop um, and you, those, those kind of systems may work um, in more rural areas. So I don't think there's like um, you will find heat networks more typically in urban areas, but that doesn't mean to say that in specific situations, some of these um, systems which involve more shared loop systems would also be viable too. Thanks, Mindy. That's, that's really helpful. Um, I wonder then maybe we could turn to the kind of role of heat networks in the future of low carbon heating in the UK. Sure. Um, and so we, we mentioned kind of early on that um, about 2% of UK heat is currently provided by heat networks and the Committee on Climate Change suggests that we should be moving towards around 18% by 2050. Do you think we're doing enough to develop heat networks now? So, I mean, I've been working in heat networks now for probably over six years and there's been a huge kind of um, huge amount of work that's gone in in trying to ensure that we are, we're growing and developing a maturing market. Um, and industry collectively has been working collaboratively with government and really pleased to see that uh, we now have the kind of framework or, you know, the, the um, outline of a market framework that has been consulted upon. So um, government has uh, put in place um, or has consulted widely on how we enable the growth of heat networks. It's also provided um, schemes to support the development of viable projects. So those schemes include the heat networks develop, um, delivery unit. Um, that team within Bayes supports uh, bringing forward viable heat network so ensuring that this feasibility studies are done but also kind of um, bringing forward how you can commercialize those projects there has also been some funding support through government through hnip and that's the heat networks investment program there will be a um 
a successor scheme to that as well. So that helps provide some um, kickstarting the market and growing projects, those um, larger projects that need a little bit of support to get off the ground. One thing to note um, is that within the UK at the moment, the heat network sector does not have statutory regulation. So as an industry, we've been working and calling for there to be a market framework that provides a level playing field for heat network operators compared to other energy operators in the market. So that involves ensuring that there is um, equal access rights for statutory undertakings and roadworks. Other utilities have that. Heat network providers don't have that at the moment. It's also ensuring that there is a market framework that provides standards and industry-wide standards in the sector. Um, there are some voluntary schemes that have been set up. So there's SIBSI ADE Code of Practice, which sets up a um, technical standards in terms of design of heat networks. And then Heat Trust, as you've mentioned previously, that is an organisation that I used to work at. And that was a voluntary scheme for setting minimum customer service and customer protection standards in the absence of there being a statutory regulator. What I'm pleased to say is that government has recognised that in order to grow the market, there needs to be um, an allow maturity of the market. We need to have a, an enduring framework and um, government has confirmed that Ofgem will be the regulator. Um, we expect that we're involved in primary legislation to come forward. But uh, once that has been put in place, the market will have more of an established uh uh, regulatory framework to work towards and that's important not only in terms of building customer confidence but it's also important in reducing development risk for projects where there isn't certainty in regulatory standards. We're also really pleased to see that government has consulted on what are what are called heat network zones. So we've touched on um, previously in this conversation about where are heat networks best suited Zoning for us is um, a kind of will play a kind of vital role in identifying where heat networks have the most potential. And that requires kind of assessment of an area at a local level, understanding the building type, the, um, the demand that's already there, any future development that's happening in an area, whether there are heat sources locally that can be utilised to serve the network. Um, and local planning authorities all have responsibility for doing local area um, energy planning as well and we think that has a significant role in helping to establish where zoning um, heat network zones sorry could be established so really pleased to see that zoning a zoning consultation has been put forward um, and that closed recently and for us in particular Vatimel sees this as a key tool in making sure that we focus on devising the right heat networks in the right locations by establishing zones. And by establishing a zone, what you effectively do is you set, you make it clear that the buildings in that zone should be connected to a heat network. And again, that helps reduce risk from a project because heat networks involve a lot of upfront investment. And to put that upfront investment in, you want to be certain that you have customers that are able to connect to the heat network. That's really interesting. It sounds like there's, there's really a huge going on, huge amount of things going on. Um, I was going to ask whether you felt as though um, maybe things are, are moving quickly enough, or do you think that, that things are kind of going at the pace that they necessarily have to run at? I mean, I think we've all had quite a busy couple of years, um, uh, and 
maybe things that we'd expect to have moved a bit further forwards have taken a little bit of a back step given um, the, the past two years and, and the pandemic. But I, I, from my perspective, I think that industry has, has come together uh, to work really collaboratively with, with government and, and future regulator to ensure that we've got a robust framework. Um, it's worth noting that um, heat network in terms of market framework, while customer protection legislation is not devolved, um, Scottish government um, has, has its, is able to set out its own plans. So there's work happening both at Westminster government and Scottish government. Um, and I'm sure we'd all want things to move a bit faster. Um, but I think, I think everything's happening um, at a good pace. That's good to know. So then to think about sort of turning quickly to the future, we've just got about a minute or so left. What do you think the likely future is for heat networks in the UK? I think it's really, really positive. Um, as you've mentioned, uh, the CCC has said that it can meet 80% of the UK's heat demand by 2050. All of the CCC scenarios in meeting net zero have factored heat networks in. They work particularly well in cities, um, providing a really cost-effective route to heat decarbonisation at scale. Um, we've had uh, we've got a programme of support that has been provided by government to kind of kickstart the market, and we know that there is um, work underway to provide the industry not only with a market framework but with statutory regulation underpinned with providing a level playing field for heat network operators so that we can design, build and effectively construct heat networks in good time. Um, I think that, that they provide a really, really valuable delivery route to delivering heat decarbonisation, which is so important as part of meeting our net zero ambitions. That's incredible. Thanks for that, Bindi. Thanks for a really, uh, I guess, a really positive, upbeat end to this conversation, which is, which is brilliant. Um, so I'd like to now thank you, Bindi Patel from Vattenfall, for your uh, time and for your contribution. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Um, and also thanks to the audience uh, for coming along um, and hearing us. Um, just to let you all know that we will be continuing this series. So the next uh, episode of The Nest will be on Wednesday, the 8th of December. And that will be another one from the Sustainable Future Mission, uh, that time with Madeleine Gabriel, who is our mission director. And she will be speaking to Charlie Baker from the Red Cooperative. Uh, so thanks very much all. And I wish everyone a very pleasant end of their afternoon. Goodbye.